Good morning, my name is Sam. I'm, I'm on the team here and it's so good to see each of you here this morning. An especially warm welcome if you're new or visiting with us for the first time or you've not been with us for a long time. Um, we'd love to get to know you better. You can head over to the Connect table um, and we'd love to connect with you there or you can just send me an email. Uh, it's sam, sam at christlychurch.ca and I would love to be connecting with you. Uh, we've also got a confidential prayer team that would love to be praying with you and for you. And so if there's any way we can be doing that, just send us an email, prayer, prayer at christcitychurch.ca and we would love to be serving you and walking with you in that way. We've just got a couple of announcements for us this morning. Firstly, our preparing for marriage course is getting started from February 13th for five weeks. So if you're not yet married, but you're thinking about getting married in the future, this is for you. Uh, for more details, you can go to the events tab on our website, or you can go to the Church Center app and you can get more details and register and so on. Secondly, um, our worship team is looking for more people to join the team. So if uh, this may be you or if you're at all interested, just send Alison an email, alison at christcitychurch.ca and she will get back to you. One last thing before we stand for the reading of God's Word. With, with the rise of Omicron, there's also, an many of us are, are struggling more with fear and uncertainty and let's be honest, exhaustion and frustration and everything else. If we just want to say, if this is you, please, please don't struggle alone. Um, reach out to us. Reach out to your CG, to myself, to Brett, to the staff, to the elders. Reach out to anyone. Let us know how we can be walking with you, how we can be praying with you, how we can be supporting you. Please let us know because, you know, in seasons like this, especially when we are struggling, God assures us that we can trust in His goodness. And one way we can do that is is by leaning into the community that He has blessed us with. Amen? Can we please now stand for the reading of God's Word? Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do with judging outsiders, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that we can gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. We are aware that you are with us, that you are for us, that you have brought us together as a community. And, and Lord, for any of those who are here who would not say they're part of this community, maybe they're not even followers of Jesus, we know that they've been brought together by you, that it's not an accident that they're seated here in this moment. So we ask you, in light of that, would you open our eyes that we might behold your glory? that we would see you for who you are? Would you open our ears that we might hear your word to us? Would you open our hearts that we might believe, God, because we know that in our seeing and hearing and believing, God, that you will work that out through the work of our hands. And we just pray that the work of our hands would glorify you in every area of our life. And we pray all of this 
In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, my name is Brett. I want to add my welcome to Sam's welcome. Uh, It is my joy to be opening the passage here with you today. This is a passage that I have gone to as my like go-to passage for the last 15 years of pastoral ministry to explain the difference of how we deal with sin in the church versus how we as the church view sin in the world. This is my go-to passage. I've been going to this text for years to try and bring clarity about how we can do this because there is a difference in the way that we handle this. Last week, we looked at how Christians are supposed to deal with sin in the community of the church. And then today we're looking with a greater degree at how the church may deal with sin in the world. There's a difference in the way that we handle it. And if you confuse the difference between the two, what will happen is you'll end up either really, really mad at the world, right? You're mad at people who do not follow Jesus for acting like they do not follow Jesus. And you get really upset. On the other hand, if, if you cross this up, you end up tolerating sin within the church that should never be tolerated. And I just want to show you that the way of Jesus is actually completely different than either of those simplistic views. It's different. The way of Jesus is different. Tolerating sin in the church will make us a lawless community. Being mad at the world will make us a loveless community. And we need to get squared away on this and get our thinking straight so that we can live into the way of Jesus, which is different. So we're going to look at today three points by way of outline for you. We're going to look at the church, the world, and the difference. The church, the world, and the difference. Ready? I don't know if you're ready. I feel like you're not quite ready. I feel like maybe last week shocked you, and you're still hanging on, going like, you know, I'm not going to get excited yet, because that was hard. love it. I just need one. I just need one with me and I'm good to go. The church, the world, the difference. Let's talk about the church. This is what we talked about last week in a very specific instance of the guy who was in a cohabitating sexual relationship with his stepmom. <laughs> if you weren't here last week, it was a doozy. Okay, now Paul the Apostle, though, he's, he's, he's got that. He's, he's got that understanding in the people as they read the text that we looked at last week. What he's doing is he's zooming out from that very specific instance of sin in the community, and he's zooming out to have more of a generalized conversation about how they should handle this. But first, he's got to correct a misunderstanding that was happening in the church. It says in verse 9, look at this. It just starts out. It says, I wrote to you in my letter. Okay, that means there's a letter that we don't have. We call this 1 Corinthians, means it's probably, it's at least the second letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. We don't have the first one. Okay, he's correcting a misunderstanding related to an earlier letter that he wrote. We don't have a copy of it. Now, he's correcting a misunderstanding in a letter, which makes me feel very good about the way that this is a 2,000 year old problem. It's not just my emails that get misunderstood. It's not just your text messages that get misunderstood. Paul wrote a letter to a group of people who he really loved, and they misunderstood what he was getting at. Doesn't that make you feel good? You're not alone. That's what's going on here. He writes a letter. They miss what he's getting at, so he corrects them. Verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Here's the correction. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world 
or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. He says that if you're gonna try and avoid the sinfulness of the culture around us who do not know Jesus, you would have to flee the world. And we're gonna come back. We're gonna talk about this in a minute. And what he's saying here is, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. That's not what I said. Listen, verse 11, he says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He's bringing clarity to the mistake. They've misunderstood him. Now remember, this letter would have been read aloud in a setting much like this. They're all gathered together. He's, he's written this letter They're standing up. One of the leaders in the church is probably just reading it out loud. You can almost hear, if you can put yourself in their shoes or their seats, Paul's rearranging and clarifying a collective misunderstanding they've had as the church. Like you can almost hear the audible collective like, oh, that's, that makes way more sense than what we thought he meant. And that's what's going on in this church. He just has to clarify something. They missed it. And just in case they don't get it, he says in verse 12, he just kind of doubles down. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not it, those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 13, he says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Two questions, two answers in those two verses. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Answer, God judges those outside. You don't. Second question, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes, 100%. Purge the evil person from among you, he says. Okay, last week I said there were two goals to church discipline. This is what this conversation is about. There's two goals. One is the salvation of the one who is caught in sin. And the other is the holiness of the community. Two goals for church discipline. Everything I said last week is how we deal with sin in the church. It's vital that we understand what the Bible says about this. Okay, Paul is writing to them to clarify the misunderstanding. He wants them not to associate with the fellow Christian who is in ongoing, unrepentant, and habitual sin who could be then categorized in their identity as the sexually immoral, the greedy, the idolater, the reviler, the drunkard, the swindler. You can fill in the gaps with whatever else you want to add there. And he says, not even to eat with that person. The specific example we looked at last week was the example of sexual immorality in the congregation. But the church needs to be attentive to the ongoing, unrepentant, habitual sin in other areas than sexual immorality. It's not the only area. It's just one that happened to be a prominent problem in Corinth. Paul addressed it directly. It's one that happens to be a prominent problem in Vancouver. We like to address it directly. In fact, he takes it more seriously than just addressing it. Not even to eat with such a one. Not even to eat with such a one. Now, there's always been a lot of debate around what that means. 
how do you not eat with such a one who is unresponsive to church discipline, unresponsive and unrepentant? What does that mean? Well, because of what Paul has already said in this letter, because of the section that we find in this text, and because of what he's going to say in 1 Corinthians 11 about the nature of the communion meal, I think he's talking about the celebration of communion. If somebody is in unrepentant sin, willful continuing sin, ongoing sin that they have no intent of leaving behind, you're not to celebrate the communion meal with them. I think that's part of what it means. I think it's getting at the communion meal. And I think the way that we would understand this because of the way they celebrated communion then and the way that we celebrate communion now probably would relate something like not being involved in your community group. Probably has that level of intimacy. You know, it's probably, probably not just extending the invite to that person to just come over and hang out just for fun. That's the level of severity that he's taking this ongoing sin problem. Like when you see them at the Superstore, you know, you don't run it. No. That's, that's, that's not what it's saying, okay? That's not what it's saying. It's like, oh, you're getting rice too? Cool. Don't talk to me. Like that's not what it's saying. I want to be clear. It's not saying be rude. But there is a difference. There's something here. You can't pretend like it's all okay. okay? It's, it's, it's not Dwight Schrute in the office when he shuns Andy Bernard. I don't know if you've seen The Office. It's fantastic. And uh, like his desk is like six feet away. And Dwight is shunning him for something he's done. And Andy like goes to talk to Dwight about work. And he's like, shun. And then he has to talk to him. And, and he's like trying to mediate it through somebody else. He's like, tell him I said this. And he's like, unshun. I need this done. Shun. And it's, I don't think that's what this is getting at. Okay? I just want to be clear. Here's what I think. To me, it's one of those things that if the conversation is not about repentance and reconciliation and restoration, you're probably not sitting down for a meal with them. The center of the conversation needs to be acknowledging and repenting of the sin that has caused them to be cast out of the community. That's what I think. See, tolerating sin in the church will make you lawless makes it a lawless community when you just sort of tolerate ongoing unrepentant sin. That's the church side of things. That's how we deal with sin in our community as a group of followers of Jesus. Okay? But I'm also well aware that there are people who attend our gatherings and participate in our community groups who are not yet followers of Jesus. They're just trying to understand what Christianity is all about. You are so welcome here. You are so welcome to explore this with us. I want you to feel that. Here's where I'd probably draw the distinction. When we celebrate communion, when I'm finished preaching, we get ready to worship, we're going to celebrate communion. Servers are going to come to the front of these aisles. And I'm going to say what we say every single week. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the communion meal is not for you yet. It's the same thing we say all the time. If you're exploring who Jesus is, you need to know that the bread in the communion meal points to the broken body of Jesus as his body was broken for us on the cross when he died in our place and for our sin. You need to know that the wine points to the blood of Jesus that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sin when Christ was crucified in our place. And if you don't believe that, then we would say, hold off on celebrating communion. We want you to get to a place where you put your faith in Christ 
and you believe that you need to be saved, that you need to be forgiven, that you need to receive the new eternal life that he offers you. But if you're not there yet, welcome. We want you to wrestle through all of that together with us. But we'd say don't celebrate communion yet. So if you're part of this community, but you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're not quite ready to celebrate communion, I don't think we would look to you and place a Christian vision of morality on you and expect you to live in that kind of way if you're not a Christian. If you don't believe Christ's death is everything you would ever need to be saved, then, then you're not a follower of Jesus yet. And that's okay. We, we want you to come to him. But we wouldn't put that same moral expectation on someone who's not a follower of Jesus, right? Right. We don't apply the moral framework of Christianity to those who are not yet Christians. That's called moralism. And moralism is not the good news of salvation. Moralism is behavior modification to force someone to change their behavior so that you would accept them in a community. We're actually not after behavior modification. Nobody's saved by behavior modification. They're saved and then their behavior is modified. Do you see the order? That's why we need to talk about how the church is supposed to relate to sin in the world. So let's, let's talk about this. That's the church. Secondly, the world. The world. Tolerating sin in the church will make you lawless. Being mad at the world for living like worldly people will make you loveless. Look at the text, verses 9 and 10 and then 12 and 13. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of this world. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, he uses world in two different senses in verse 10. Look at this. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. The first time he's talking about the culture around us, not just like where we live. He's talking about the cultural ideological framework of the world around us. He uses it like this in other places. He's already used it like this earlier in 1 Corinthians. It's really important that we see this. The second time he uses it, he is talking about the physical place where we live. And it's important because I want you to see that he is not telling them to retreat from the physical place that they live in because the world and the culture and the ideologies around them are wicked. He's not saying run away then. He's telling them how to relate to the world in the world. He's saying as Christians, this is how you relate to the broader culture that is not Christian while you live in the world. It's what Jesus talks about in John 17 about being in the world, but not of the world. We live in the world, but we are not of the world in, in the sense of ideological framework, in the sense of broader culture and understandings of what it means to be human. We are in the world, not of the world. He's telling them how to relate to the broader non-Christian culture in the physical place where they live. Okay? Sin knows no human borders. You will not find a place 
where you can exist in a pure Christian world and there's no contamination from the world. I don't care if you get the first ticket to Mars. The moment you put your feet on the the surface of Mars, you just screwed it up for everybody. It's sinful. You brought your sin with you. And anyone else who came with you also did. I mean, uh, one of our kids is reading Lord of the Flies for for school. Okay, Uh, so I'm reading it too, because it's awesome. The whole purpose of that book was to, to cast a vision of what it would really be like if a bunch of young boys got marooned on an island. Is not ideal. <laughs> Doesn't matter where you go, sin knows no man-made border. Just goes wherever we go. Because of sin, humanity has been barred entry from the one place that was sinless. And so according to Genesis chapter three, we all now live east of Eden. That place of sinlessness is not where we can live anymore. So it doesn't matter where you go, you're not going to find it. If you think, man, you know what, Vancouver, the culture here is so wicked. It is. So, so wicked here. I'm going to move to Alberta where, where, boy, I heard it's the promised land of conservatism and you just get away from all the sin in Vancouver. I'll tell you what, I'm from the small town, the bastion of conservatism. It's sinful there too. Okay, it won't be any better. It's different, but it won't be any better. You go, well, you know what then we should do? We should just buy some land, northern part of Vancouver Island, start a holy commune. (laughs) Um, We'll live in sinless perfection there on our holy commune on northern Vancouver Island, just eating salmon and growing mushrooms. (laughs) Okay. You might start out with the right intent. Um, That will be a really weird cult in less than six months. It doesn't work. It does not work. There's already enough weird cults on Vancouver Island. We don't need another one. It just doesn't work. You can't run away from sin. It's here. You have to know how to deal with it. You have to know how to relate to people who do not believe what you believe about the nature of being a human being in this world. We are called to be the church in the world. We are called to live out kingdom culture here in this physical place where we live as a signpost that points to the exceedingly better way of Jesus. That's our call. Don't run away. Engage. But know how you should engage. Because you engage the world in a different way than you engage sin in the church. That's part of why church discipline matters, though. The church is to stand out as a countercultural, Christ-like community. We don't tolerate sin within the church, but we also don't run around judging sin outside of the church. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you? He asks the question, the rhetorical question, what have I to do with judging outsiders? The answer, God judges those outside. You don't. How do we relate to people in the world who have different ethics and a different moral vision or ideological framework than us? How do we relate to them? It's called evangelism. That's how we relate to them. 
Take the issue of sexual immorality that Paul's been talking about, okay? Your job as a Christian is not to try and force someone who is not a Christian to conform to your vision of flourishing in their sexuality. Your job is to share Jesus with them. And if they come to see and love God and who God is and what he has done for them in Christ, then they will be transformed by the renewal of their mind and they will conform to a biblical sexual ethic. Do you see the sequencing? Okay, just put down your culture warrior sword. Take up whatever it should be in evangelism. We're not trying to get people to conform to our vision of sexual morality. We're trying to get people to meet Jesus. Once they meet Jesus, everything else works itself out over time. Trying to force someone into our vision of a biblical sexual ethic or otherwise is just behavior modification, which is moralism, which is not the gospel. It's the same with greed. It's on this list. Greed will absolutely consume a person. If this is the operative worldview they live with, it will consume them. It will destroy them. They'll probably have nicer stuff than you. Greed will control and destroy a person. But if they are not a Christian and they are not doing anything illegal, trying to convince them to live your biblical ethics and morals as it relates to money and possessions will not bring them salvation. It will bring them moralism, which is not the gospel. We don't preach generosity. We preach Jesus who will make you generous. So you're hanging out with your greedy neighbor you shouldn't be like, you know, you should just, it feels so good to give. It does. It feels great to give. That's why people give money. Unless they're motivated by Jesus and then they give for a different reason. If you're hanging out with your greedy neighbor and you're just having a conversation about their greed, don't try and make them generous. Introduce them to Jesus. And generosity will flow once they realize how much they've been given by God. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different framework. You can apply that to every list, every sin on the list in here. Okay, my job is not to try and convince a sinner to change their behavior, to conform with a biblical pattern of living. My job is to show them Jesus, how much God loves them in Christ. After that, then it's a lifelong journey of discipleship about how they change their living. But, but trying to get someone to change how they live without the transformation of the renewal of their mind, like it says in Romans 12, is very, very difficult. We judge the sin of those inside the church. We do not judge the sin of those outside the church. It's very freeing to live into this truth. You do not need to be the moral police. You just take the badge off, put it down. Again, put on the evangelism one. That's how the world's changed. Like 15 years ago, I uh, was talking to someone who said they follow Jesus. And they asked me a question about some other person that we knew who had begun living with his girlfriend. They moved in together. And um, this woman said to me, what do you think of that? And I said, well, I don't know. They seem to love each other a lot. And she said, they're living in sin. And I was like, well, they're not Christians. So yeah, their whole life 
they're not living in a redemptive life. They're not living a redemptive life. They're not living in redemption. They're not living in salvation. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't worship him. So don't put your moral framework of their cohabitating. Like don't apply your Christian moral framework to their cohabitation. Apply your Christian desire for them to meet Jesus to their situation, and then we'll see how it goes. Do you know what I'm saying? It's a different way of thinking, and you have to get the framework flipped and straightened away, or else you're just trying to moralize the world, and that doesn't work. It's not God-glorifying. So how do we relate to a Christian in our community who is in ongoing unrepentant sin? Loving, gracious church discipline. How do we relate to a non-Christian in the world who is in sin? Loving, gracious evangelism. That's the framework. Don't forget, though, just because someone is living as if they are not interested in Jesus, it does not mean they've already rejected Jesus. It likely means they've never heard of him and what he has done for them. So don't make the assumption because somebody's living a life that seems contrary to the gospel, contrary to scriptural vision of morality or whatever you want to say, don't make the assumption that they don't want to know about Jesus. Don't make the assumption that they've rejected Jesus. Make the assumption that they probably haven't heard. It was true in my life. Tolerating sin in the church will make you lawless. Being mad at the world because of sin will make you loveless. And we need to get it in the right order so that we can live into the way of Jesus. Okay, the church, the world. Now third, the difference. The difference. Did you see the question and answer in verses 12 and 13? Second half of verse 12 says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And the answer comes in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Do you notice that purge the evil person from among you is in quotation marks? Do you see that? It's because this idea is not new to Paul. When he's writing this letter, it's not a new idea. This is what he grew up with. This is what he's teaching because Paul's Bible was the Old Testament. He is teaching a biblical framework of thinking as it relates to the community of God's people in Corinth. Okay, back in Deuteronomy, chapter 17. Talks about idolatry within the community, and it says, I quote, so you shall purge the evil person from your midst. That's how you deal with idolatry in the community of God's people. Deuteronomy 19 talks about bearing false witness, lying. Deuteronomy 21 talks about a rebellious son. Deuteronomy 22 talks about sexual immorality. Deuteronomy 22 also talks about the specific sexually immoral sin of adultery. Deuteronomy chapter 24 talks about human trafficking. And it says, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. That's what it says to each and every one of those that are listed. And that list, in a certain way, corresponds to what Paul has listed in his little sin list here in our passage. And when they are to take them outside the camp and purge the evil from among them, they're to take them outside of the camp and put them to death. That's what Paul's quoting. Now, he's not suggesting they put the sinful person in the church in Corinth outside the church and then put them to death. He's not suggesting they drag him outside of town and stone him. That's not what he's, he's saying. What he's saying is the community of the church must be distinct and cannot tolerate sin like this. See, God did not just command them to live, though, a holy and distinct life and 
be a holy and distinct community, he also commanded them to be a light to the nations. Simultaneously, be a holy community and a light to the nations. This was their call. This is all over the Old Testament. All the way from Abraham to Isaiah, you see God calling his people to be a light to the nations. They were called to be a welcoming, even an invitational community where they would welcome the nations into a relationship of worship with the one true God. This was their call. They were called to live as a distinct community and a welcoming community. In fact, God called his people to live with a radical holiness and distinction while at the same time calling them to an unheard of in that time, in that part of the world, kind of welcome to the outsider. Radical holiness and radical invitation. And you go, that's great. How does that help us today? Let me show you. Okay, Tolerating sin in the church will make you lawless. Being mad at the sin in the world will make you loveless. Have a look at this slide with me. to make sure that's the one that corresponds to the one in my notes. On the left axis, you see holiness and distinction. On the right-hand side, you see, uh, on the bottom part of me, you see invitation and mission, a missional impulse moving to the right. If you are low in holiness and distinction and low in invitation, you are a lifeless community. Don't care about sin, don't care about anybody else. On the top left, if you are only interested or primarily interested in the distinction and being a distinct community, you will end up being loveless. You have a low invitation and a high distinction. You can come off as a very loveless community. Whereas on the bottom right, with a high invitation, but not a lot of attention paid to holiness, not a lot of attention paid to distinction, you will become a lawless community because everything goes. Just come on in. Come with us. What I want you to see is we are called, and this is in Deuteronomy, they are called to be high holiness and high invitation, high in distinction and high about their missional impulse to see the nations come to know who God is. That means they would be a light to the nations. That's what they're called to do. This is what Paul's aiming at in the church in Corinth. Look at the next one. This is from Paul as he talks about it in the New Testament. They are called to holiness and distinction on the left-hand side, invitation and mission on the bottom. They are just an absolutely neutral people if they don't care about either of them. But if they only care about distinction, they are going to preach moralism. We want you to modify your behavior to come and be a part of our community. Super high walls, okay? But if they're on the bottom right and they're... They're just like, come and be who you are. We don't really care if you ever change. Just come along, live your truth. That's relativism that says, we want you to be a part of our community, but we will not be too pushy about what we believe. Both are wrong and both are unfaithful. If you look up to the top and the right, high distinction, high holiness, high invitation, high mission, that's gospel transformation. That's the place where you are transformed by the renewal of your mind and you live a completely different kind of life in this world than you would have otherwise ever lived. It's when you as a community recognize that we are to be distinct and welcoming. We are to be different and engaging in the world. This is who we are. Think of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says we are to be salt and light. Salt and light. It says in verse 13, Matthew chapter five, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. First question, how does salt lose its taste? It's never happened to me. And here's why. Our salt, that salt you have in your salt shaker, is remarkably stable. So we don't experience it losing its saltiness, but that's because we have refinement systems they didn't have 2,000 years ago when Jesus talked about this. Yeah, the salt that the people Jesus was preaching to on, in the Sermon on the Mount, on that day and whenever he preached in that part of the world, the salt that people used in the region of the Dead Sea was salt in a sense, but it wasn't pure. It was a white powdery substance that they used as salt, but it was mixed with a number of other minerals. It's possible then if you had sort of impure salt mixture kind of stuff that actually all of the salt could get washed out and what you are left with is a bunch of minerals that look like salt but actually aren't useful for anything except being tossed on the road. That thing that was salt, that white powdery substance you had, salt gets washed out, it's no longer salty, just a bunch of minerals, toss it on the road. What's he saying? You are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your saltiness. You are not, well, if you're contaminated and you get washed out, you lose your distinction. You lose your distinctiveness as a community. Jesus is saying you can't do what you're called to do then because you won't be who you're called to be as it relates to the world. You're called to be distinct. You're called to be salt. You can't bring the Christian contribution to the world if we lose our distinctiveness as Jesus' people. At the same time, verse 14, Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Okay, we are the light of the world. A city on a hill. But nobody lights a lamp and then hides the light, but we actually are called to lift it up so that others can see. Light illumines the way. Light exposes the darkness for what it is. Light shows people the path. God's people were always called to be the light of the world all the way back into the Old Testament, and sometimes they weren't, which is why Jesus says this in John chapter 8. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus comes as the perfect fulfillment of what God's people are to be like. And he says we're to be salt and light in the world. We are the light that Jesus was talking about when we follow him. As a community who follows him, we are the light of the world. We are a light shining in the world. He is the light of the world, to be clear. So you need to take your job seriously about shining his light everywhere you go and it's everything you do. That's what he's calling us to. We can't be the light we're called to be and shine the light of Christ if we're all hidden away, you know, in some northern Vancouver Island commune. Doesn't work that way. We don't serve the world by going incognito. We don't serve the world by leaving the world in darkness, turning down the brilliance of our light just so that we can fit in where we work, just so we can fit into our families. We're called to be distinct. The countercultural community of Jesus' people are to be the salt of the earth and are to be the light 
of the world. And as the salt of the earth, we need to maintain that Christ-like distinctiveness. But as the light of the world, we need to follow Jesus and engage in a Christ-like mission. It's distinction and mission. You can look at the last slide. I, got, I went crazy with these two-by-twos this week, just so you know. Like I, I made so many of them. I just am only showing you three. I really, really enjoyed myself, actually. But salt and distinctiveness and light and mission. If you don't have either, you're a dead social club. No distinction and no mission. Why do you even exist? I'll tell you right now, you won't exist for long. There's your prophetic word of the day. <laughs> the churches that lose their distinction and don't care about mission will cease to exist. Very short order. Jesus will snuff out their lampstand, according to Revelation. Salt but no light on the top left. You are distinctive, but you're closed off. You're so worried about getting contaminated by somebody who doesn't hold exactly what you hold that you become cut off. You're salt, but you lack any kind of welcome. On the bottom right, you're light, but no salt. You're welcoming, you're welcoming, but you're permissive. And you're not calling anyone to live a biblically faithful life. But if you see in the top right-hand corner, both salty and light, you are Jesus' church. This is the vision we are given of who we are called to be as Jesus' church, as it relates to us as a community living in this world. Countercultural people, not a conformed people. A countercultural people who live with a distinctiveness, but who are also missional in the sense that we want the light of Christ to shine through our community. Not only are we the salt of the earth and trying to maintain Christ-like distinctiveness, we understand ourselves as light of the world, which means we are trying to shine in a way that we engage in a Christ-like mission. And the dual image of salt and light is supposed to portray both aspects of this witness that are actually really not easy to balance. This is our engagement and our holiness. This is our distinction and this is our mission. It's tough hold them in tension all the time. But it's worth it. Because if you do not know, when in the text it says, they are to purge the evil person from among you, it's also the charge that was brought upon Jesus. The religious leaders and the political leaders in the city of Jerusalem, put Jesus on trial for sin he did not commit, and the punishment was to be taken outside the city and put to death. See, because he was ousted, you can now come in. Because he was pushed out, you can now be received. This is the punishment that Jesus endured, and he endured it for you and for me. And this is why when Paul uses the framework or the language of purge the evil person from among you, he doesn't mean take you outside the city and put them to death. He means offer them repentance in a gracious way because of what Christ has already accomplished. Anyone in the church who's put out because of sin and anyone in the world who maybe live like hell, there's an open door to come to Jesus. There's an open door back into the community of God's people because he was put out. They thought they were purging the evil from their midst, but they did not realize what they were truly doing. Jesus, in fact, did carry away the evil that was in their midst, but it was my evil and yours. 
He carried away all of the evil and all of the sin for all of the people who will ever come and put their faith in him. He died upon the cross outside of the city because the religious leaders wanted to keep it distinct and pure. They missed it, and they missed Jesus. But his death in our place tells us we have a home here. Because he went out, you can come in. 